take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Page 897 in one of these Bibles in the pew. want to do, uh, this is a long account. It's 40-something verses about the raising of Lazarus from the grave. So I want to just read the opening few verses, and then I will read as we go, as I preach. I'll read the passage, preach, and do like that, rather than reading the entire passage before the sermon. So hear God's word, beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray together. Father, we have hungry souls. You said that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We pray you nourish us now. In Jesus' name, amen. This past Friday, a 19-year-old Missouri woman was involved in a head-on collision. Her Mercedes flipped upside down, trapped her inside. Rescue workers arrived. They worked for over 45 minutes trying to pry Katie Lentz free from the car, but the well-built car would not budge. She was pinned there. Medical professionals on the scene deemed that she would not last long. They thought it was a hopeless situation. And as she lay there trapped, she asked workers to pray with her. And at that moment, a Roman Catholic priest appeared. According to one of the rescue workers afterwards who said, he came up and approached the patient and offered a prayer and anointed her with oil. Then he spoke to the firefighters and the rescue workers and told them to remain calm and that their tools would now work and they would be able to get her out of the vehicle. Sure enough, shortly after that, she was cut free from the Mercedes. She was evacuated via helicopter. And as rescue workers watched the helicopter fly off, they turned around to thank the priest who had been to who had been described as a miracle, but he was gone. So I read where some of the responders said, we would like to find this fine gentleman to thank him, 
But in this particular case, it is my feeling that it was nothing more than sheer faith and nothing short of a miracle. Who knows? Miracles are of special importance to Christians. I'm not saying that was one. I just found that interesting because I read that on the most reliable source in media today, the Internet. Miracles are of special importance to Christians because Christianity, if you do any comparative religious studies, it's the only major religion in the world that depends on miracles. And for that reason, many people claim they can't believe because they don't believe in any form of miracle. Other religions, such as Judaism, may report or even allow miracles, but only Christianity relies on miracles. The founder of Islam, the prophet Muhammad, never claimed to have performed a single miracle. But Christ performed numerous miracles. He walked on the water, he quieted the storm, he fed the multitude, he healed the blind, he even brought Lazarus, as we will see in a moment, back from the dead. Now, only if miracles are possible is Christianity believable. The miracles of Christ were designed to prove that he was the Messiah that he was the one who'd been spoken about, prophesied about in the Old Testament, that he was on the earth as the fulfillment of the promise that God would dwell among men. So when Peter, the disciple Peter, was preaching after Jesus' resurrection, he said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. They knew the miracles is what gave him credentials. Christ seems to have performed only two miracles in the first year of his ministry. Most were done during the second and the third years. And during that time, we have 35 miracles recorded in the Bible. His miracles had to do primarily with the bodies of people, either from the standpoint of maintaining life, such as providing food, or from the standpoint of healing disease, or casting out demons, or making the blind to see, or the deaf to hear, or the dumb to speak, or the lame to walk. He did not perform a single miracle in judgment. Compassion was a part of every miracle he performed, but his main purpose was not to show compassion. His main purpose was to establish the fact that he indeed was the promised Messiah. That's what's most important to remember about the miracles. Now, this explains the message which he sent to John the Baptist. When John had been arrested, he was in jail, and he was wondering, for sure, he was having doubts about whether Jesus was the promised Messiah. Jesus sent these words. Now, when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, He said, here, take this message back to John in prison. Go and report to John the things which you hear and see, that the blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He was quoting from Isaiah that would be signs of the Messiah. Now, Philip Yancey wrote a book over 20 years ago entitled Disappointment with God. And the book unexpectedly sold far more copies than was expected. Unusual title, Disappointment with God. It apparently touched a nerve. And we often feel, and I think it's true, we often feel as though God has let us down, that he has not performed the way we expected, he has not served in the way we hoped, and we feel disappointed, though we may not say anything about it. And so Yancey in that book deals with three questions. Is God unfair? 
Is God silent and is God hidden? Because we all have expectations of how God will work. And when those expectations are not fulfilled, we often are not only confused, we're discouraged, sometimes we're hurt, sometimes we're upset, and very often we're angry. And we ask the same, these questions. Why, God, didn't you know and don't you care? Didn't you know and don't you care? And those are the same questions that Martha and Mary are going to ask Jesus when he shows up late to Lazarus's uh, illness. This story has four scenes. I read to you the first scene. And that's the news arrives about Lazarus's illness. Jesus and the disciples, if you can imagine a map in your head, they're on the east side of the Jordan River. News comes from Martha and Mary that are close friends with his, close family, uh, that, that they're, the one he loved is, is sick. Now, what was their assumption? Their assumption was he'll come. Jesus will come immediately when he hears that, but he doesn't. He stays there two more days, right where he was. In fact, the implication is he stayed there because Lazarus was sick. Because he tells his disciples in verse 4 that Lazarus' illness was for the glory of God. So after waiting two days in verse 7, Jesus says, let's go to Judea again. We're going back. And the disciples knew we're going back to where they threatened your life and they were getting ready to kill you. So they are less than than uh, enthusiastic, the disciples are. Rabbi, uh, maybe you've forgotten. They're planning to kill you back where we were, and you want us to go back there again. Jesus counters this objection with his statement in verses 9 to 10. Are there not 12 hours in the day? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light, and so forth. He's comparing doing God's will to walking in light. In both instances, Jesus is thinking of his obligation to do the work of his Father. So perhaps as the disciples were pondering this statement of walking in light and so forth, Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. They're still confused, thinking, well, he'll he'll wake up if he's sleeping. And so Jesus, in verse 14, just no more analogies, no more figurative speech. Lazarus is dead. And then in verse 15, he says he's glad, not that Lazarus has died, but he's glad that this is going to provide an opportunity for a supreme demonstration of the power that would testify that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, do you realize that God not only can do, but he also does use problems and apparent tragedy in our lives to minister to others and to accomplish his will? I never, never as a pastor try to help someone see a cause and effect to things that happen, especially bad things. I don't say, oh, well, I know you went through this tragedy, but look how God has used this. I don't know that. I don't know that for sure. I have a friend that almost died in a car wreck in college, and at least one other man is walking with Christ today because of his concern for this friend of mine that almost died because he had shared the gospel with him several times. And this other man came to faith through that. But we could say, well, that's, there's a result, but who knows all the results? Most of the time, we will not see such outcome in our lives. But God sees it even though we do not. So in heaven, as one writer said, there's a divine interconnection between events that we never realized. 
And so the problem with so much that happens is that we cannot see the big picture. We only know that we hurt in the here and now with what's going on at this very moment. So we have to trust God. This was one event from all outward appearances was tragic, to at least to the sisters and those who knew Lazarus. Okay, scene two. I told you there are four scenes, now the second scene. And now we drop down to verses 21 and following. And let me just tell you what happens for the sake of time. I never know. I have to test this out at the first service, and then at the second service, I know how long it takes to to say all this. So there's a two-day walk, long way, two-day walk. And Jesus and his disciples arrive on the outskirts of this small village where this family lives in Bethany. And the house is full of friends and people that have come to console Martha and Mary. And Jesus sends word to Martha that he has arrived. And she leaves the house alone. And she walks out to meet him. Now look at verses 21 and 22. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, that is a very interesting statement. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. You know what's in there? There is genuine faith, and there is repressed anger. She truly believed in God's power, Jesus' power and authority, but she is disappointed. And that comes out, if you had been here, he would not have died. Have you ever experienced that? Lord, I know you're all-powerful and in control, but why don't you do something? So, in a sense, it's a statement of faith. I believe that you can control all things, and yet you're frustrated and even angry, like, then why haven't you? Why did he desert me? Why did she die? I know, I believe, but why? Belief and pain, faith and anger at the same time. So Lazarus was their brother. They'd watched him die. That's traumatic for anyone. If you've ever been with someone when they die, that's a hard thing to to get over. Where was God? Well, the truth is, we know God operates on his own timetable. You've got your schedule. I've got my schedule. But our schedules are not his schedules. Our deadlines are not his deadlines. The good news about that is there's always hope. So when your deadline has been passed and you say, well, it's all over, no, it's not. Okay, so the hope in this case is what Jesus says in verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus is turning faith in a doctrine into faith in him as a person. He's saying that he has the power to bring the dead to life. Johnny Erickson Tata, who has spent her entire adult life as a quadriplegic, she says her favorite verse in the Bible is Philippians 3.10. Now, if you don't have that memorized, that says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Now, why would that be her favorite verse? 
Well, we can understand why she likes it because in the resurrection, she won't have that disabled body anymore. She'll have a glorious body. She'll be able to run again and swim again. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Martha goes back to the house. She calls her sister Mary. The visitors follow her out. Mary's response to Jesus is very similar to that of Martha's. That's in verse 32. You know, she comes out. This is on the next page, 898 in the Pew Bible. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. There it is. There's a statement. So her scene is about, her thing's about the same. Now the scene is pitiful. It gets very, very emotional at this point. Mary and Martha's pain, their mourning are shared by many friends who are there, and everybody's weeping, it says in verse 32. And this evokes a response from Jesus that's very, very rare, almost never mentioned in the Bible, in verses 33 through 37. And there are three phrases. It says in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply troubled. He was deeply moved, it said, in his spirit and greatly troubled. To be deeply moved meant to be angry. He's angry at the enemy of death. 1 Corinthians says he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus had existed as part of the triune God when Adam and Eve were created and warned, and he had seen the choice made and the sin and the death and the curse. Death had not been part of God's original plan. Never had been. There's something unnatural still about death. There's something wrong about it. It's an intruder. I've attended or been a pastor at hundreds of funerals. I've been to more cemeteries than I can count in several states. There's nothing natural about it. Nothing. And now Jesus is angry. His anger is pointed at seeing the pain and agony brought about by this enemy, death. He is angry at death. He's angered at what sin has brought into the world. It's as B.B. Warfield said about this verse. It brought home to his consciousness the evil of death. So he is deeply moved. Secondly, in verse 33, as I've read it, he said he is troubled. He's disoriented. He shares the grief, the feelings of loss of this good friend. As Hebrews says, we have a high priest, not one who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And then verse 35 says he wept. And that is, it wasn't a term of a quiet weeping. It said he burst into tears. Loud. Everyone could see it. And that's why in verse 36, the people said, Behold, how he loved him. Look how moved he is. Scene three. Are y'all still with me? How are we doing? All right, we got time. How are we doing as far as time? That's what I meant. <laughs> Not. Now scene three is at the tomb. Verse 38, they arrived there. Tombs in that day were, were cut out of limestone, so there, were, there was stone and he tells them to remove the stone that was placed there at the entrance in verse 39. And the response back is, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. We're not talking about a resuscitation here. We're not talking about giving chest compressions moments after a person's eyes roll back in their head and they stop breathing. We're not talking about a near-death experience. Four days. 
Not to be crass, but what would that mean? That would be that someone that died at the medical center on Wednesday, they counted days, 24-hour spans like that, right? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It would be like saying, okay, and he's, he tells him to remove the stone. He bows his head in prayer. He lifts his hand to the Father, and then he says, Lazarus, come forth. Many of you use Matthew Henry's commentary, probably the most read commentary, and he's got that interesting observation there. Matthew Henry says that he had the name Lazarus, otherwise every dead person would have come forth. And then there's this moving prayer, verses 41 through 42, where he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me, that they may believe and so his purpose of this happening wide open, this could have been at night, this could have been just with Martha and Mary and a few others. This was in the daytime when the crowd would have been at its largest there at the house. And that came out there to the grave with them. And the purpose was that they may believe that it would substantiate that Jesus is the Savior. So here he comes out in full view of his two sisters, Lazarus does. His sisters who had nursed him in his final days, who had been with him when he died, who had mourned for four days, and the men and the women who had prepared the body for burial with spices according to the customs of the day, and they wrapped it in burial cloths. And he comes forth in front of those who had moved the, the gravestone, and there he stands, called forth from the dead, called forth by the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, called forth by the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, call forth by the one who will call each of us from the grave, call forth by the one who calls us this morning to have faith in him. Scene four, the response of the people. Man, if I'd seen that, I'd have no trouble believing. Can you imagine that? Let's go over here to Rose Hill. Stand in front of a fresh grave that's just been covered over and some stranger comes up, maybe in a priest, came from Missouri, you know, flew down here and like the story and says, come forth and we're standing there and somebody comes out of one of those, one of those graves there. How would, I'd never doubt anything God says again. Want to bet? Well, you can't say that in church. Um, um, you think not? What does it tell us in verses 45 and 46? Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Note the word many. Many. But now the next verse. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Some did not. Now, to what was their unbelief due? Lack of evidence? I don't, I don't think so. A lack of seeing the work of God? A lack of anything tangible, like kind of out of the ordinary? Just raise somebody from the dead? This wasn't common, folks. They are unwilling to believe. They harden their hearts to the things of God. In fact, if you drop down in the chapter and you look at verses 47 to 53, we read that the miracle, this miracle, was what sealed it for the enemies of Jesus to plot his death and say, he must die. 
It's this miracle that did it. Look at verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Look at, here's the human heart. Some see and believe, and others only not believe. He's got to die. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 12, verses 9 to 11, look at verses 9 to 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They wanted to kill him too. We not only want to kill, kill Jesus, we want to kill Lazarus, because he is being used for people to come to faith. Where are you in this? When John writes, there's an unspoken rhetorical question. Where are you in this story? We don't have the categories to process this kind of event. Of all the great signs, all the great claims to signs and wonders and miracles, even today, you turn on the TV and you see people talking like, look at the signs and wonders. Nobody does this. Nobody. Raises somebody from the grave that's been dead for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that you would see the glory of God? What we say earlier, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And here he is standing as king, standing as Lord before this tomb, before a grave, before the ugliness of death. And he says, basically he's saying to death itself, I triumph over you. I defy you. And Lazarus comes forth. You know what this is? It is a sign. The raising of Lazarus is a sign. It shows what Jesus will do at the end of the age when those in their tombs will be called forth to meet him in the air. This was the first of, of what's to come. Statistics tell us that every week throughout the world, a million people die. You realize that? A million people. It's roughly 10,000 people an hour. 56 million people die every year. Regardless of how far our medicine and technology advance, nobody brings somebody back from the dead after four days. This is the great physician. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And do you see the importance of Martha's statement in verse 27? I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Who is the writer of this gospel? Speak to me. John. We may think, come on, John. Couldn't you not have gone up and interviewed Lazarus? Lazarus, come on, tell us what you saw. Did you see this tunnel of light? Did, I mean, what, what was it like? What did you experience on the other side, or however you want to put it, beyond the grave? There's none of that. It would be like saying, John, aren't you missing something? Could not, if you'd gone up and just told us something from talking to Lazarus, why did he not do that? Because it's not about Lazarus. It's about Jesus. And that's what he wants us to see. He wants to see, to see one person, and that's Jesus. Some of us, some of you, may be right now in a great time of doubt and disappointment. 
with God. And you're like Martha and Mary, and, and in your heart of hearts, and maybe you've never said it to another person, you are thinking, where's God? Didn't he know? Doesn't he care? And I'll just say trust him and recognize his love for you. And some of us here are like those observers. They believed. So, but if you're here today as a skeptic, how do you explain this? You say, well, I just believe it didn't happen. Look, you've got places named here. You, I mean, you've got names of people. You've got people, and John's gospel was one of the earliest ones. We have fragments of the gospel of John that date back to within the year 94 A.D. That means these people were still living when this was written. They could have said, that's not what happened. This is not true. You don't have that. It is specific. It's not science fiction. It's not fable. Like once upon a time, there was a man named Lazarus who had two sisters. He gives places. He gives people. He gives timing. He gives hour of the day. How do you explain this? John 5 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we all face the reality before us that we will die. We don't know when, we don't know how, but that one thing is certain, unless you come again, whichever happens first. We pray that our trust would be in Christ. We, we hear him mocked and scoffed and doubted uh, throughout our world, throughout our culture. His name used as profanity, and yet here is the only person ever that called a man forth from the dead. Just as you can do with us, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you called us forth and gave us new life through faith in Christ as our Redeemer, as our substitute who died on the cross, bearing the condemnation for our sin that we deserve. May our hope and trust be in him and him only. In Jesus' name, amen.